That was just a, a perfect song to introduce uh, the text this morning. I really feel like that song encapsulates the sermon. We could almost just close in prayer. All to leave and follow thee. All to leave. Leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Is Jesus that amazing that it would be right, appropriate, and freeing to leave everything to follow him. What a great meditation. And it leads us right into our text this morning. Mark chapter one. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter one. I don't know if you have those moments when you're in a conversation and as you say something, you watch the other person's facial expressions in response to what you said, and they tell you that you just didn't make any sense at all. My most recent experience of that, and I have many of these experiences because I, I talk a lot. Uh, part of it is what I do for work, but I just talk a lot in general. One of my most recent, I was having a conversation with one of my friends. We were talking about the passing of time and how it just seems like each year gets faster and faster. We have friends that we went to school with who have passed away, who are in glory now. We just are just thinking about how weird time is. And I wanted to express how strange it is just in, we were looking at our kids, we were looking at our careers, and I was saying how weird it is that in looking at the span of my lifetime, I have been in pastoral ministry longer than I haven't been. I, I have been a pastor, started in junior high ministry as junior high youth pastor when I was 18 years old. And 19 years after that, I'm still in pastoral ministry. And to realize I have been a pastor longer than I haven't, it's just a very strange thing to think through. That was my meditation. But what came out was... It's crazy to me to think that I've been a pastor longer than I've been alive. To which my friend kind of looked, you know when a, a dog hears like a high whistle, they kind of go like this. My friend looked like that and went, yeah, that's pretty crazy. And I said, what did I just say? And he said, you've been a pastor longer than you've been alive. And I went, oh, you know what I mean. I wonder, I wish that we had the video footage of the faces of the disciples when they hear the words from Jesus that we will hear this morning. I wonder if they kind of turn their heads as if they were hearing that high-pitched whistle. Just, wait, what did you say? What, what is he asking? Did I hear him correctly? Did you speak correctly? I wonder what they would have thought. I want to get in their sandals this morning and ask that question. What is it that they were hearing and thinking as Jesus was speaking the words of truth to them? We find these words in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. Let's read it together and ask God's blessing on our time. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea because they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. These are the words of our gracious God. Let's ask him to write their eternal truths on our heart this morning so that we would walk away affected by what he would say to us this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for the preservation of this precious account of our Savior. And God, we come to this section that again can be very familiar to many of us. We have heard these stories before. We've even sung songs growing up in church about becoming fishers of men as we follow you. But this morning we want to hear as if we were the disciples hearing these words for the very first time. We want to smell the fish that they've caught. We want to feel the mist rising off of the Sea of Galilee. We want to hear the creaking of the ships and we want to see the Savior intentionally pursuing these incredibly ordinary men. And in this story, we want to see our Savior pursuing us. So Father, be pleased to show us Christ. We want to see him. We want to marvel at his glory. We want to stare at him. We want to be transformed by him. And this morning, we want to hear him call to us. And we want to follow. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, you remember Mark is writing to prove that Jesus is the true king. And again, at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, if you are looking for the king, you would have to ask, where is his forerunner? Where is his herald? That's why Mark starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the herald. He is the forerunner. The next question would be, where's the coronation? Uh, why haven't I heard of the coronation? And so Mark tells us of the coronation of the king at the baptism of Jesus. And then we would expect after the coronation of the king that there would be a huge party. But no, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness to fight against the devil, to be tempted and to win, to come out of that wilderness experience victorious over sin and over Satan. Why? Because he's proving that he as king is victorious over everything. The next question would be, okay, so if he is the king, where is his kingdom and who are his citizens? Where is his kingdom and who are his citizens? And Mark gives us the answers to both of those questions this morning in two very clear sections that if you and I desire to follow after Jesus, we need to hear these two aspects of the gospel. Very clearly in verses 14 through 15, we just see the call of the gospel. And then in verses 16 through 20, we see the effects of that call. And so we'll use those as our main outline this morning. We'll look, number one, at the call of the gospel. And we are going to be called by the gospel this morning as we hear Jesus preach. And then we'll look at the effects. What should take place? What must take place 
if we truly hear the gospel rightly and appropriate it correctly. The call of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. Number one, the call. Verses 14 through 15, after John had been taken into custody, that gives us a number of things. That gives us a timeline, a time frame. It's important to see this because there is a huge leap in time from the middle of the end of verse 13 to the beginning of verse 14. So in the middle between verses 13 and 14, you can fit about eight months into that white space. And if you want to see what happens in those eight months, you can go to John chapter one through chapter four. John one to four fits in between verses 13 and 14. So John being taken into captivity, that's uh, John the Baptist being held captive, taken into custody. That is both a time marker of the eight months that fit there. But it's also a a foreboding reality for Jesus. His cousin is taken into custody for his preaching. That he told Herod, and we're going to get into this later in the Gospel of Mark. He told Herod, what you are doing is unlawful, it is immoral, it is wrong, and you must repent. And he will be beheaded for saying that. In fact, the text literally says, after John had been delivered up, which is the exact same phrase that's going to be used about Jesus when he is delivered up by the religious leaders, by Judas to the religious leaders, and by the religious leaders to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. So while verse 14 is both historical marking the understanding of the time frame of when this is taking place, it's also telling us a reality of a choice that Jesus has to make. Knowing that John's preaching got him imprisoned and will ultimately get him killed. Is Jesus going to open his mouth and preach? Jesus knows that what he is going to say is ultimately going to get him delivered up and killed. But he doesn't shrink back from it. He is faithful to proclaim the gospel. He comes into Galilee. So he was in Nazareth. He comes into Galilee. We're going to talk more about this next Lord's Day, Lord willing. The province, the whole province of Galilee is about 50 miles long by 25 miles wide. And on the eastern border of that province is the Sea of Galilee. It's about 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. You can see it from anywhere you are in the province of Galilee. It's a beautiful, beautiful location. And it's the hub of commerce in the north in Israel. And that's why Jesus is going to make it his headquarters in Capernaum, which is on the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. It's a densely populated province. Uh, It's the most densely populated province per capita in Israel at that time. And since Jesus wants to get his message out to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, he's going to set up his headquarters in Capernaum in the Galilee region. And he's preaching. Verse 14, he's preaching the gospel of God. Some of your translations might say the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he's preaching and in his preaching... Uh, For sure, it's bigger than what we have in verse 15. 15 is just kind of summing it all up into four main points. These four main points probably showed up in every sermon that Jesus was preaching about the gospel. Number one, if we were just to kind of see the four parts of Jesus's message as he preaches, number one, he's saying the time has come. Number two, the kingdom is here. Number three, you must repent. And number four, you must believe. The, The kingdom... That word and that idea is used 162 times in the New Testament. The word for gospel is used 120 times. The word repent is used 31 times. And the word for believe and to have faith is used 484 times. 
And it's all starting with Jesus saying, this is, these are the four main points of every sermon that I'm going to preach. That's what he's preaching. So let's just take them one by one. He says, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. This is the first point in the gospel message. Everything in the past has led up perfectly to this moment. This is why Paul is going to write in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Remember in our study of Daniel, we saw all of those prophecies of things that had to happen before Jesus showed up. Jesus is saying here, all of that has happened. He probably said that in one of his sermons. Hey, you guys remember the book of Daniel? Remember all those prophecies about what's going to happen? It's happened. It's all taken place. Jesus, by saying the time is fulfilled, he's grounding his ministry in the prophetic word of God. And he says the time is fulfilled. The word for fulfilled is overflowing. It's like a cup where you'd fill a cup, but you leave a little bit of room. This word means you fill it all the way to the brim. So it's overflowing. He says, all of the time that we have had leading up to this moment, it has overflowed to what's taking place right now. And he says, time, there's two Greek words for time. There's chronos, where we get chronological from. And that just means history unfolding, the time frame of history just unfolding, event to event to event to event. That's not the word that's used here. It's a word uh, kairos in Greek, which means a very specific moment in time. Not the timeline of the history of the world, but a specific moment that alters everything around it. We don't really use words in English to refer to time this way. The closest that we might say is chronos is like some, something historically being discussed. Like this is uh, the historical timeline of what's happening. Whereas Kairos would be, this is a historic event. So Kronos is more of the historical timeline. And Kairos is, this is a historical, a historic event. This is something that you will never forget. And that's exactly what happened with the coming of Christ. Christ's coming is historic. He literally divides the timeline from BC to AD, Anno Domine, in the year of our Lord. What he's saying is everything that has led up to this moment was purposed by God, planned by God to bring about exactly what he wanted now. This is just a reminder to us that God's timing is always perfect. Always. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the perfect time. This is exactly when the Father had purposed and planned. Mark, by quoting Jesus here, is drawing our attention to our gracious God who initiates and acts in this moment in human history. So the time is fulfilled. Everything that needed to happen has happened. It's overflowing to this moment. And this is a historic moment. Secondly, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. The kingdom, this is a massive theological issue, but just a, a high level view of this it's not primarily a geographical issue, but the reign and rule and activity of God in the hearts of his people. Now we know based off of what we have studied in Revelation and in Daniel, that the kingdom of God is a future event that will be a geographical thing. It will be an event of God bringing about a physical kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I am beginning that. I am inaugurating that. Everything I'm doing in these moments is bringing that about. But it's an already not yet. 
It's a physical, but a spiritual. You can't just put it into one camp, but it's all about his rule and his reign and his glory to be seen and understood and savored. So Jesus is saying, I am the king and I'm ushering in my kingdom. But the problem is we want to be king. We don't want to submit ourselves to Jesus as king and we rebel against him. And that's why point number three, you must repent. He says, the kingdom is at hand. I am the king bringing in the kingdom, but you still want to be king. You don't want to submit to me. And so you must repent. We must repent. We need to change our thinking, believe and trust in him and receive the gospel. Repentance, as we've talked about before, the Greek word metanoia literally just means a change in your thinking that will lead into a change in your living. It's a change in the way that you thought. You used to think, I want to be king. I could rule my life better than anyone else. And now you're hearing, actually, Jesus is king and he will rule my life better than I can. So you change your thinking, which will lead to a change in your living. What makes you really happy? What makes you really happy? How would you answer this question? If I only had blank, I'd be happy. If I only had this, I'd be happy. Maybe for some of you, it's a house. It's hard to get a down payment. It's hard to buy a home. You're looking around going, man, if only I had a house, I'd be free of worry and anxiety. I'd have a home base, a home location. Maybe it's a job to be able to buy the house. Maybe it's a promotion at work. If only I had a spouse, if only I had a child, if only I had health. Repentance is about recognizing that whatever word you're putting in that sentence, if I only had this, I'd be happy. Repentance is about recognizing that whatever word you're putting in there, if it is not Jesus, it's the wrong word. It's the idol that you're treasuring, that you're struggling with, that you don't want to leave behind. It's whatever that thing is in your heart where you're saying, I love this and I really truly believe that if I had this, I would be satisfied. And so I'm saying to Jesus, I know you're telling me you'll satisfy me, but I don't know if I firmly believe that. So what do you do? You repent. And you don't just try to stop sinning. You don't just say, I'm going to stop having an idol. No, you love Jesus more and you pray for greater love for him. That's why we gather together. We gather for the purpose of saying, let's love Jesus more so that we hate sin more. I would encourage you to pray for the gift of repentance. Don't don't just say, I'm going to stop sinning. Pray for the gift of repentance. Jesus has commanded it and we should be praying saying, God, I want to live out that command. Help me to repent. Once you repent, once you turn in your thinking, if you do not turn to something else and cling to something else, you'll just create a vacuum where sin will continue to grow. And that's why Jesus says, point number four, believe the gospel. So the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It's very interesting. If you look at John the Baptist's preaching and Jesus's preaching side by side, they're identical except for this one point. John never says, believe the gospel. Jesus says, John has been preaching the gospel. I am the embodiment of the gospel. And so believe it, treasure it, cling to it, trust it. Literally, that's the word. Put your trust in the gospel. What does it mean to have saving faith? Again, this is a massive theological issue, but uh, over time, 
It's been summed up in three Latin words. When we talk about the three aspects of saving faith, we're talking about uh, the three words are notitia, census, and fiducia. So those three words just mean notitia, knowledge. You have to know certain facts about God if you're going to be saved. You have to know certain things about him, but knowing those facts does not save you. A census, to have a mental assent, to agree with those facts. So you have to know certain facts to be saved. You have to agree that those facts are truly true. But that also doesn't save you. You and I know that. The book of James says the demons know and believe that those facts that they know about who God is are true, but they're not saved. So there's something else that has to happen. That's that fiducia, that's that faith, a, a clinging to Jesus, a loving and a treasuring that those facts are true. So what is saving faith? If we were to say it very simply, it would be, you have to know certain facts are true. You have to believe that they are actually true, agree that they're true. And then you have to love that they're true. That's what changes your faith from demonic faith into saving faith. Demonic faith just says, I know certain facts are true and I agree that they're true. I believe that they're true, but I hate that they're true. And I wish that they weren't. Saving faith says, I know certain facts are true and I believe that they're true and I love that they're true. So think about the gospel. What are the facts that are given to us in the gospel that sometimes we kick against? Well, we kick against the idea that only God can satisfy us. We kick against the idea that sin truly condemns us and actually brings forth sorrow. We've gotten away with sin so often that we kind of don't believe that anymore. We, we, we don't believe that sin actually does lead to death. I think sometimes one of the biggest obstacles to our receiving and loving and treasuring the facts about the gospel is that the gospel says, you don't just need to repent of what you've done wrong. You don't need to say sorry for the things that you've done wrong. You need to say sorry for who you are at the very core of your being. You don't just say sorry for the things you've done. You say sorry for you. You repent from who you are. And then you confess I can do nothing to save myself. Man, we don't like that. Especially as, you know, warm-blooded Americans, we don't like that. I can pull myself up from my bootstraps, thank you very much. This is the American dream, and we put that into a spiritual context of, God, thanks for getting the race started for me, but I'm going to save myself. And none of us would ever say that because we know that that's heretical. But we live that out so often. I think that's something that we really don't like to treasure about the gospel. Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot earn his favor. You cannot buy his affections. You cannot perform to make him love you. And I don't think deep down inside that sits well with prideful people. That's why Jesus says you need to believe, you need to receive, you need to cling to the gospel. So can I just ask you, do you love the gospel? I know that you know the facts about it. And I know that most of you, if not all of you, believe that those facts are true. But do you love those facts? Do you treasure the person and work of Christ? Do you treasure the reality that you are a sinner that is in need of a savior and that only Jesus can satisfy? Have you repented? Have you believed? If not, why wouldn't you? Why don't you? If you have not repented and if you have not believed, can I just ask, why don't you? I would love to know that answer. I'd love to talk with you after the service to figure out what is it that stands in the way between you 
and true, genuine belief. I think often we end up being like Adam and Eve, trying to sew fig leaves together. Trying to say, you know what? I know that I've sinned. I know that I have shame, but I can cover my own shame by what I do. I can cover my own shame by my good works. The gospel says, no, run to Jesus and he will cover you by his work. This is the summary of the message of the gospel. This is the summary of Jesus' preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this, the call of the gospel, is the message that the disciples will hear that will change their hearts and get them to follow Christ. And that leads us to point number two, the effect of the gospel. So we hear the call of the gospel. Now, number two, the effect of the gospel. The effect of the gospel. This is verse 16. As Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea because they were fishermen. Over the, uh, the circumference of the uh, Sea of Galilee, on the edges, on the outside of the Sea of Galilee, you had 16, over 16 ports that were there. Now, this is a happening place for fishing. In fact, some of the titles of the towns that you know, Bethsaida, literally means house of the fisher. Uh, Magdala, we, we refer to Mary Magdalene. She lived in Magdala. Magdala literally means fish tower. Uh, Terikai is another port city that we've found. And Terikai means salted fish. This is a place of fishing, a place where the commerce of fishing happened. And you can see Peter, who is Simon, Jesus is going to rename him down the road here, but Peter, Simon, uh, and Andrew's brother are casting a net into the sea. The word for net describes the kind of fishing that they're doing, and it's different than the word for net that we see later on in what John and James are doing. What Peter and Andrew are doing, it's a round 20-foot in diameter net. Uh, you can kind of think of it like somebody tossing a pizza into the air. That's what they're doing. They're tossing it into the sea. It had rocks around it or some heavy weights around it. It would go down. It would catch all the fish. Usually they would uh, have a rope at the bottom where they could pull and it would kind of cinch up that net around the fish and then they could pull it up. Or sometimes you would just dive in and you'd grab the net and you'd pull up the fish. That's what's happening here. They are casting the net into the sea. And Jesus says to them, Verse 17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There is so much in this verse. Number one, we often think that Jesus is just showing up, doesn't know these guys and says, hey, Simon and Andrew, follow me. That's not the case because remember, John 1, 1 to 4 fits in between Mark 1, 13 and 14. And so Simon and Andrew know who Jesus is. They've hung out with him. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him cleanse the temple. They have seen Jesus do things, but they have not yet followed him as disciples. The second thing that's very interesting about this account, Mark leaves out what Luke puts in. Luke chapter five is the same account. And Luke tells us that before the call of the disciples, Jesus does that whole miraculous catch of fish thing, right? You throw your net on the other side, you haven't caught anything, throw it over, and you'll catch a lot of fish. And it happens, and they say, oh my word, this is amazing. And he says, hey, follow me. But Mark doesn't include that. And I think he purposefully doesn't include it because, though we would say, well, that's an awesome miracle that must have led into their decision to follow him. Mark says, no, that's not why they did. That's not why the disciples followed Jesus. In fact, 
This call in verse 17 is so astounding and miraculous on its own. We don't need Luke chapter five to understand the supernatural miracle that's taking place. There is so much in this verse that's astounding. Let me just give you a couple things from verse 17 that are shocking. Number one, Jesus initiates with them, follow me. Now this is shocking because back in that day, rabbis were approached by students. People would walk up to a rabbi and say, can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? Can I be a learner? Jesus says, I'll be the one to choose. Which again, if Jesus is king, he has to say, I have authority and let me pick, let me choose. Mark is showing us here that Jesus has a different kind of authority than all of the rabbis that had gone before him. Jesus is coming to them. They're not seeking him out, they're fishing. He's pursuing them. He initiates with them. He says this to them. If he hadn't said it to them, they wouldn't have said it. They wouldn't have followed him at that point. Secondly, another astounding reality of this text is that he says, follow me. The reason why this is astounding is in the Old Testament, you were always told, follow either Yahweh or the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter five is very clear about this. You follow God, you follow the law that God has given. Those are the things that you follow. And now Jesus says, follow me. All of the rabbis would have said, let's follow Yahweh. Let's follow the Torah. And Jesus says, no, follow me. Why? Because I am God and I am everything that the law is pointing to and I will perfectly fulfill it. Thirdly, it's shocking that he just says, follow me. And it's shocking because there is no prerequisite given for these disciples to live out first before they follow. They are ordinary people. They are not skilled in the law. And Jesus does not say to them, hey, let me test you out first. Let me see if I want you to be on my team. Let me check out what you've thought, what you've learned, who you are. No, no, he just says, follow me. No prerequisite, nothing that you need. You don't have to do anything to follow him before following. You just have to follow. All that was necessary was believing that Jesus is the kind of man worth leaving everything to be with. That's the prerequisite. Do you believe that? Then follow him. And a fourth astounding reality of Jesus' call here is he says, let me change your employment. You were fishing for fish. I will make you fishers of men. You're going to fish for souls. Again, he's claiming authority over his citizens. You are mine. I'm your king. And I will tell you what you should do. Jesus is king over Satan. As we saw in the temptations, he's king over sin. He's king over sinners. He has authority over all of them. And I just wonder, what would their faces have looked like when Jesus said this? We have a context in our mind when we hear fishers of men, uh, a great commission, and that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. But a good Jewish man in first century Israel, when he hears the, the phrase fishing for men or fishers of men, he would instantly go back in the Old Testament to God using that phrase of, I am going to call fishers of men. And every single time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's a reference to God saying, I'm going to get people to go do the job of grabbing the wicked people in the world and judging them. You can look this up on your own time. Jeremiah chapter 16, 
verses 16 through 18, Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 3 through 5, and Amos 4, 2. When God says in the Old Testament, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, he's saying, so that you can go catch the wicked and I will judge them. But here, Jesus says, I want you to be fishers of men for the purpose of salvation, not judgment. I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He gives this astounding call to these two men at this point, and then two men later, to the four men total. And my friends, Jesus is still in the business of calling people. And I don't know what's taking place right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's calling you right now. I wouldn't be surprised if right now he is saying through these words, the time has come. I am the king. Turn to me, cling to me, follow me, and be a fisher of men. Is Jesus calling you this morning for the very first time? Turn to me, follow me. If he is, I would plead with you, submit to him. He is the greatest king imaginable. Follow him. But if you're here this morning, you would say, I have heard that call and I have followed Jesus. I want to ask you, go back. Do you remember when you first heard that call? Do you remember when you first heard Jesus call you and say, I have done the work to set you free. I have saved you. I've loved you. Follow me. Don't forget how gracious that is, that he initiated that with you. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus unless he initiates it with you. And if he called you and you're following him, go back to that moment of him calling him because the more that you are aware of him pursuing you, the more you will be overwhelmed by his grace and his love towards you. If you're struggling to feel loved by God, go back to when he called you because he didn't call you because you were special, just like he didn't call Peter and Andrew and James and John because they're special. They're ordinary people. He gave them no prerequisite. He gave you no prerequisite. Follow me. I'll do all the work to save you. The more you are aware of his initiative in your life, the more that you will be secure in the love that he has for you. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paul's going back to his call. Jesus is the one who initiated it. He began it. He'll be faithful to complete it. This is Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because he initiated that love to you and he'll never let it die. This is your history, my history. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're following him, a disciple of Christ, this is our history, that he has called you. He initiated that call with you. Brothers and sisters, this is the history of CBC. CBC exists because this exists. From mouth to ear, down through the millennia, and here we are. And Jesus says, continue to pass it on. What will this call make of us? The more that you go back to the call that God has given to you, the more you're aware of him initiating and pursuing you, the more that you will glory in his love and his grace for you. And the more you're going to want to share that with others.
the more you're going to want to tell others, tell them the good news. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Uh, How could we not go tell others about our greatest love, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy? So can I ask you this morning, if you have responded to the call of Jesus, if you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus, how's your fishing going? How's your fishing going? Jesus said, I will make you become. So there's a process to this. You won't instantaneously be doing this well. There's a process. How's your fishing going? Because fish don't really like being caught. (laughs) So good fishermen have to be faithful, keep on doing it, have to be patient. Fish don't like being caught because they're going to come out of their home environment and be eaten. They don't even know that. They don't like being caught. They want their freedom. The analogy for a non-believer is not that they're in a lake and they will be eaten if they're taken out. Non-believers are swimming in a lake of lava. They're dying. And we, as the fishermen that God has called to plead with them to come out, we're not taking them out to destroy them. We're taking them out to save them, to give them eternal rest. So how's your fishing going? Fishing takes patience, takes faithfulness. You also have to go where the fish are if you're going to catch fish. Can I ask you, honestly, can you number, tally in your mind or on your piece of paper notes, how many non-believers do you have a genuine relationship in your life with for the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of loving them and pointing them to Jesus? Be creative. Think of how you can go into the world to be a fisher of men. Pray for opportunities. I know that many of you, we've talked about evangelism, we talked about sharing the gospel, and we always say that whenever we pray for opportunities to share, inevitably God gives us an opportunity that day. Wake up in the morning and say, God, I want to be a faithful fisher of men. Today, give me an opportunity, and I want to walk through that door. I want to share Christ. Be creative. I I read a book this last week I was talking about missions work, talking about sharing the gospel with people, and there was this crazy illustration And the author even said, like, this isn't the way to share the gospel all the time, but it's amazing how it happened. There was a guy that was sharing the gospel with a man. He was on the side of the road. He's smoking a cigarette. And he was, the the missionary was talking to him from the scriptures. And the man went up to him and said, you know, that paper is really good quality paper. I would love to have that book so that I can tear the pages out to roll up my cigarettes. And the man said, hmm, I'll give you my Bible. You can do that if you promise me that before you tear the page out, you read it. And the man went, sure. The missionary went back a few weeks later and the man said, I started in this book called Matthew and I read a page, ripped it out, rolled up a cigarette and smoked it. I read the next page, ripped out the page, rolled up a cigarette, smoked it. And then I got to Mark and I started thinking, should I be ripping this up? And then I got to Luke and I read all the way through without ripping anything up. And about John chapter one, I said, I love this Jesus. How can I be saved? So the author goes, not the ideal way, smoke somebody into salvation. But brothers and sisters, let's go to where the fish are. And let's share the gospel with them creatively, compellingly. I don't know if you guys have heard that phrase. I don't remember who it's attributed to. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you guys heard that? I understand the sentiment and I agree with the sentiment. I think it's very sweet. We should live Christian lives that are absolutely 
ambassadors of Christ, that they see Christ in us and through us. At the same time, that phrase is so unhelpful. You cannot preach the gospel without words. You need to tell people about Jesus. Because remember, no Tisha, they need to know certain facts. So tell them about how amazing Jesus is. Preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. The gospel is clear. Paul says, Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised all according to the scriptures. Do you share the gospel with those around you? How's your fishing going? Penn Gillette of the famed magic duo, uh, Penn and Teller. He's a very famous atheist. But he said, if the Bible is true, if, if Christianity is true, the most unloving thing that you can do if you are a Christian is not share the gospel. Because if I'm going to hell and you have the antidote and you have the way of salvation and you don't tell me about it, that's the most unloving thing you can do. So how's your fishing going? What would they have thought when they heard this? Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I didn't even know the amazing adventure that those words would put them on. What do they do? Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. What's the proper response of the gospel? What is the proper effect? If the gospel is going to take effect and root in your life, what is the proper response? It's those two words, leave and follow. Leave everything and follow him. This is a living illustration of the effects of the gospel. There are four men in this text that will instantly leave everything to follow Jesus. They have no hesitation. They leave immediately and they follow. Verse 19, going on a little farther. Jesus sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boats mending their nets. Now, again, this is a different word for mending of the nets. This is not the little 20-foot net that's thrown out. This is a big, huge drag net, 100 to 200 yards long. You'd pull it behind a boat. You'd grab in all the fish, and they're mending it because that would break nets inevitably. They're mending the nets. And immediately, verse 20, he called them, and they leave everything too. But notice we are told what they leave. They leave their father Zebedee in the boat. This is, by the way, the last time that we see their father Zebedee in the Gospels. We never see him again. He's named again, uh, just as their dad. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But we never see him again. And I wonder if James and John ever saw him again. It's very interesting because you hear often today, come to Jesus He'll help your job and he'll help repair your family relationships. Well, in this verse, they lose their family and they leave their job. Remember Luke chapter 14, verse 26. You must hate father and mother if you're going to be my disciple. Not that we hate, obviously the scriptures say we are supposed to honor and love our parents. We're to honor our family, love our family. But in comparison to the love that we have to Jesus, it's going to look like we hate our family members because we love Jesus so exclusively, so much. Jesus is saying to James and John, to Peter and Andrew, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments that you have in life look like hate by comparison. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, remember the, the passing off of that uh, prophetness, the prophethood that they shared. And as Elijah's passing it off to Elisha, he gives him his cloak and Elijah 
as he's taking that mantle, as he's about to become the prophet, he says, before I do this, let me first kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah says, sure. Jesus, when a man said something very similar to him in the gospel of Luke, first, before I follow you, let me bury my father. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. Come follow me now. It's a very different call. They leave their family and they also leave their job, which we're told in verse 20, they leave the boat with the hired servants in the boat. So this is a lucrative business. They have hired servants. So they leave not only their job, but they leave all of their money behind. Their whole career and their pension and their retirement account. If you come to Jesus and you say, you know what, I'll obey you, Jesus. I'll follow you. If my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then you're not following Jesus for Jesus. You're following Jesus for whatever is on the other side of that if. That's your greatest treasure. And Jesus is just a means to an end. And if he's king in the entire universe, if, he, if he's king over all, he will not be a means to an end. That is not saving faith. And so here, Jesus says, follow me for me. He must be the goal alone. You can't follow Jesus if you're a narcissist. If the world is all about you, you can't follow Jesus because it has to all be about him. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Christ says, I don't want some of your time and money. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. Is that some sense of fanaticism? Is this just too radical of a notion that we need to follow Jesus for Jesus and leave everything behind? Not if you understand who Christ is. Not if you understand the nature of the gospel. The gospel is not do these things and then God will save you. The gospel is do these things because God has saved you. Thomas Chalmers, old Puritan author, wrote a book called The um, Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection. Talking about how do we kill sin? We kill sin by looking to something greater that we love even more. And that is an expulsive power. Sin is thrown out because we love Christ. He says this of this passage. At the Sea of Galilee, Christ called the disciples to follow him. And so they did, leaving behind their boats and their businesses. They were so taken with Christ that they never felt the cost of their renunciation. They walked in the epicenter of a new adoration that had silently slain their old affections. Renunciation that is self-aware is mere asceticism, suddenly boasting in its own magnificent sacrifice. The apostles came to Christ having surrendered the possessions that stood between them and the will of God. And even so, we do not remember them because they chose poverty, but because they adored Christ. If we too are spellbound by his excellence, relinquishment will be more of a byproduct of devotion than a prerequisite of it. And then he says this, true lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. You say, yeah, but this, this is hard. They leave everything to follow Jesus. This seems impossible. And I just want to encourage you with Christ, our elder brother, the truth that Jesus himself is calling his disciples to do, leave everything and follow me. 
he did it first. He did it first. When he's asking James and John to leave their father in the boat and follow, he had already left. Jesus had already left his father's throne and would later be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. Jesus has pioneered the way and says, follow me. In essence, Jesus is giving them a blank contract saying, please sign this and I'll fill in everything later. And that sounds terrifying if you don't know the character of the one that's writing up that contract. Jesus is good. He's paved the way for you. The disciples don't know where they're going, but that didn't matter to them as long as they were going to be with Jesus. Because knowing that they would not walk perfectly would lead them to treasure him as he walked perfectly for them in their place. So the question for us this morning is, are you following Jesus? Yes. But an even deeper question is, do you trust the one who's calling you? Do you trust him? Don't turn to the right or to the left. Don't go backward. Trust him. His kingship over you will not crush you because he himself was crushed in your place. So brothers and sisters, is there anything in your life that you're looking back? You've left the boat, you're following Jesus, but you're looking back. Or something else has popped up in your life where you're saying, Jesus, I know you're satisfying, but I'm really struggling with this over here. If you're here this morning and you have never followed Jesus Christ, what's keeping you in the boat? Will you get out of the boat today? It's time. Yes, the gospel is a call to count the cost. It's a call to come and die, but it's also a call to rest. It's a call to paradise. I want to encourage you, even as we partake of communion this morning, to think through what is the greatest obstacle in my life to me personally submitting to Jesus? If I haven't already done that, if you here have not already done that, where in your life are you most struggling to surrender? And if you have already followed him, where are you still struggling to rebel against his authority? He's calling to you and to me this morning. Leave everything. Follow me. Now, we are so familiar with the story that we miss the absolute audacity of what's happening here. Who does this person think that he is who can just walk by people and command them to do what he says to do? Who does he think he is? Look at how this is one of the most uh, audacious claims. Look at the immediacy of the disciples' response. The only explanation for this is he is who he claims to be. He is king. If Jesus isn't who he claims to be, this is the most disgusting, cultic statement and group ever. If Jesus isn't who he claims to be, this is absolutely wrong. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, we would be crazy not to follow him. If he's not God, we would be fools to follow. If he is God, and since he is God, we would be fools not to follow him. So what are we to do? We're to hear the call of the gospel and respond the way that the disciples responded. We are to leave and follow. We are to repent, cling, believe, treasure, leave and follow. And then become fishers of men. Go tell everyone that there is a kingdom. There is a king and that king loves you. And that king has made a way for you to become his citizen. You don't have to do anything. He's already done all the work for you. Turn to him, trust in him, cling to him. 
and love him. In conclusion, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says it this way. And I think this is so helpful to just kind of sum up the nature of what's happening in this text. He says, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality and all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of that into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they don't talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we would call goodness as a mirror is filled full of light. But they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not thinking of it because they are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. If you're busy looking at the source, of all the goodness and all the glory and all the grace and all the love, you're going to say, gladly will I leave to follow you. Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you so much for Jesus. What a privilege to glory in the grace that he has given to us, that he calls us. Come, follow me. There's nothing that you have to do I've done all the work for you. God, that is just absolutely stunning. And we would be fools not to repent, not to kill sin, not to trust in you. So Father, even now as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, I pray that we would hear that call again, anew and afresh. For those who have received that call, who are your disciples, that they would remember the graciousness of that call in the first place. You initiated you intentionally went to us. And God, for those in this room that have not responded, they have not left the boat. They are still there. And they are hearing the call yet again. Repent, believe, leave and follow. God, I pray that they would do that right now. Today is the day of salvation. They would turn and trust in you. They know the facts. They probably believe that they're true. But today is the day to leave behind everything to follow you. Make that so in our midst this day. We pray in your name. Amen.